where we watch all your favorite genre movies and indie television. Uh, I am Lydia, and this is my co-host... Joseph! Hi, how are you? Hello. Who says that? Hi, how are you? Um, it's, it's a line from someone. It is a line from something. It's, hey, hi, how are you? And I don't know what it's from. Oof, that's oh. gonna kill me. Oh, I'm gonna have Hopefully, to look it up. Hopefully, four to five minutes in, we'll just... There's I, no because I'll forget. I need to look it up. It's no, I'll forget, and then it'll be three in the morning, and I'll sit up in bed and scream it, and then you'll wake up and be like, "What in the <laughs> sweet fuck?" <laughs> Is this dry queen? Uh I don't know. It's gonna be something stupid. Okay, so this says it's from SpongeBob, but I don't think no. I remember it from SpongeBob. That's not right. I also see Jeffrey Star doing it. Yes, that it's his opener. That's where I got it from. That's I don't know I if from. that's what I'm remembering it from. I swear it's in a movie or something. Well, it was Jeffree Star for me. That was definitely it. And he's not a drag queen, but... I mean... He's canceled, though. Everyone's canceled. He's been canceled for so long, it just never took. Yeah, well, this was a bigger cancel. I don't know. What happened this time? More racism. Yeah, not surprising. That, that tracks <laughs> with his entire record. A lot of manipulation. Sounds right as well. Yeah. Didn't he do the, like, got the receipts for James Ch- James yeah. Charles thing again? Isn't that, like, the 47th time? No. He's like, I'm just going to allude to the receipts. That's what he does every time. And that's not even me saying I don't think he has them. He probably does. He just likes to stir the pot. I have a cute booklet this time. I left my book somewhere else, and honestly, I think I know what's in it anyway, so I don't care. Okay. Okay. You're ready, then. <laughs> Ready adjacent. For the interrogation. Ready adjacent. Right. <laughs> I'm never that ready. That's what my mom says. She's five minutes five minutes till she's ready. Ready adjacent. <laughs> so, um, okay, you go. We've been together this whole time, so I know most of what you've been watching, but you go. I mean, I suppose people already know what we're going to talk about for the main portion of the show, but we also watched something Yeah, I mean, together. it is in the title. We also watched something together, which was cool, so I thought we could talk about it too. But scary stories. Oh, duh! In the dark. Yeah, <laughs> Lydia was giving a very like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I am not prepared for whatever you're about to dish on me right now. I was like, what the fuck did we watch together? I was definitely asleep. Like, don't talk to me. <laughs> this was last night, people. Yeah. This was like, t- like exactly 24 hours ago. And I still don't remember it. Do we want to talk about it? Or do we want to blah, 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 save it for another podcast? No. No, we, we saw it. This was during our time. Makes it sound weird. In the jail. <laughs> in good, this is, and this is our good time. Yeah. Oh, okay. The only time Throwback. he's really happy around me. There, There is I no mean, friendship here. It's all a lie. Yeah. Well, the truth hurts. <laughs> Fuck. It's been 10 years and you're telling me this now? 10 years. Oh, God. It's okay. so misled. I don't like realizing how old I am. Yeah. Like, we definitely met when I was just out of high school. I was like 18 or 19. That makes met. it sound very, like, sexual or something. <laughs> I don't think anyone has any illusions. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Scary stories to tell in the dark. Yes. We watched that together last night. So you have a history. That's true. With this. That's true. It's not the Space Network this time. I'm surprised. <laughs> 
uh, um, yeah. Is the Space Channel? <laughs> oh, God. Were you in Canada? I thought it was Space Network. Have I been saying it wrong this whole time? I've definitely been saying Space Network this entire time. I think it's Space Channel. That's stupid. Okay, well. Sounds way dumber. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, no, I mean, I grew up with the Scary Stories books, because my yeah. brother is eight years older than me, and um, he, I guess he had one when he was a kid, because they came out in, like, okay. the 80s or early 90s. Mm-hmm. And then when I grew up, I got really into horror, so I started reading it because it was just on the bookshelf. And I was probably so you're like, home? Yeah. So it wasn't one of those library perusals? No, 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 no. My brother owned it. Like, I think my mom probably bought it for him because mm. she's obsessed with horror and wanted us to be too. My brother's <laughs> not a big fan. But um, I got really into it. So I read the books when I was probably like, God, I must have been like seven or eight. Like, I wasn't old. But we had one of the copies with the original artwork in it, which is super hard to find now. It's original artwork by um, Stephen Gamble. And, I mean, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is just a collection of, like, short campfire horror stories. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really all it is. Um, but they're based on traditional folklore, like global folklore from a bunch of different regions. And the illustrations, and anybody who's read these books knows, the illustrations from the original yeah, um, they look edition. crazy. So crazy. They're super, super creepy and super weird. Um, and it makes, even though the stories aren't that scary, like they're really not that scary, it elevates them and makes them that much more frightening because of those like really creepy unhinged drawings in Mm -hmm. it. And it's all in black and white and like very like faded. Everything looks kind of foggy and misty and super creepy. Um, but I loved those books when I was a kid. Like they scared the hell out of me and they're so fun to read when you had like a sleepover and you're like sitting there in the dark and you read all the spooky stories to each other with the flashlight under your chin. Um, so I love those books because my stories always won because <laughs> they're <laughs> always like way scarier yeah. anybody else's. And then when I grew up and became an adult and had oodles of tattoos on my body, I decided to get a Scary Stories tattoo. So I have yes. a tattoo of one of the original illustrations from the Scary Stories book. It's from a story, The Little Black Dog. Which is basically, it's about this older man who's walking around and this, like, he keeps seeing a little black dog following him around everywhere and it gives him the creeps. So everybody he sees, he's like, this dog won't stop following me. And everybody he says that to says, there is no dog behind you. Mm, Okay. You never told me the story, actually. Yeah. And he always says, well, I don't care who can see it. I can see it. It's there for me. And that means it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's basically the premise of the story from the beginning. But he's being stalked by this little black dog. But I just always thought the illustration was really weird and creepy. Cause the illustration is of this dog that kind of looks like it's being like formed from mist, almost mm-hmm. like it's not totally corporeal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But some of its paws are human hands, and oh, some of yeah. them are like just regular dog dog paws. There's something about it that seems to say something about death and how death is constantly stalking you. And it, I don't know. It's just a really cool story. It's it's mm-hmm. one of the scarier ones, in my opinion. And I love those books. Yeah. <laughs> and what's, I mean, to add to that story a little bit, right? I That's the one tattoo that you got that I came with you for. Yes. And so it was a pretty cool tattooist. It was a pretty cool, we watched Candyman during We did. I loved, I loved that guy's studio. Um, can I pl- do you care if I plug the other? No, of um, so he's he's called um it's at Wolf Rosario on Instagram if you want to check him out. 
really, really awesome. He's in Toronto, Ontario. So if you're ever in Toronto and you need a tattoo, I highly recommend him. He does book out like way in advance. But he does this really cool neon noir kind of like horror style. It's very interesting. Really, really intense blacks. And he adds elements of reds or pinks or blues. Very cool work. I highly recommend checking him out if you if you love tattoos. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I never uh, read, read or heard of this book until you told me about it. The Scary Stories Still in the Dark series but of course when i was a kid i was huge into goosebumps and what's funny is love goosebumps yeah i i saw um a little video about someone who's still into horror today and just pointing out how covers like so not just the children's book covers of like goosebumps but a lot of horror books like during that era have the the illustrations and whatnot on the covers even though they're campy even though they have a thing they evoke a world of horror that is like inviting or interesting or engaging. It just seems so cool. And now you just get, you know, huge font, uh, you know, black and maybe there's a car or there's a face mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, and that's I mean. it. They're well, they're well designed graphically, but they don't have that very particular individual charm horror books from that era had. Like you can imagine someone collecting those and wanting every cover like that forever, like as a, as a thing. Yeah. And Scary Stories, while a different style than that style, is still another one of the things where the illustrations are iconic. The illustrations in Scary Stories are so different to me. Like, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying, and I definitely think, yeah. I definitely agree, like, they are iconic. And when they change the illustrations in the new run of, or not the latest run of books, because they brought back Stephen Gamble's illustrations, but in the second run of the books, they had changed out all the illustrations and made them, like, put in different illustrations. The illustrations were still beautiful. Like, they're still very, very well done, but they didn't have the same, like, depth or darkness or kind of gothic element to them that I think the original illustrations by Stephen Gamble had. So while they're still beautiful, because the people who love the Scary Stories books so deeply associate them with Stephen Gamble's illustrations, it really took something away from, like, those stories, from those books. And, like... A younger Almost generation. graphic novel level. Yeah. And like, a, a, you know, a younger generation who'd never heard of the Scary Stories books, who'd never seen any of those older illustrations, will probably still love them with the new illustrations and think they're great. But there is an element of horror and and mystery that you lose when you lose those those illustrations. Uh, yeah. Even though I haven't, I, I completely agree. The illustrations are just very um, visceral, very yes. o- obvious. Yeah. Oh, Alvin Schwartz wrote the books. I realized I said who the illustrator was like 80 times, and I never <laughs> said who the author was. Um, he adapted all of the stories from the original folklore. I just think it's important to point that out. <laughs> so the movie itself, I don't have much to say about it, but I, I'd say it was it was cool that they integrated a bunch of the short stories into one coherent storyline. Um, yes. So I, th- I thought they made a like a interesting decision there, and it, and it kind of worked. But as a movie, I think it's kind of average not for me like not much to say about it but that, partly i don't have much of a relationship yeah. with the. i mean i would say it's a seven out of ten yeah. entertainment wise like i mean is it an amazing movie no probably not it's significantly better than the goosebumps movie who did oh yeah which did a, a similar idea where yeah. it brought a whole bunch of stories into one narrative structure but for whatever reason with goosebumps it just didn't work and i think it's because goosebumps while they're short they are sort of a fully fleshed out novel. Like they have mm-hmm. a beginning, middle and end. There's enough there that you could adapt one of those stories into a full length movie and it would be like meaty enough. Whereas scary stories, they're like, those stories are like one to two pages long. Like they're, they're so short that mm-hmm. you could probably make it into one movie, but it would be hard. Whereas having it like just basically all they had to do was give it a background through line 
And you can have those multiple stories come out and just be the result of something else, right? Like, like say, I'm trying not to give away too much if you haven't seen it, but say like Cabin in the Woods, the movie Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. There's a whole bunch of different things that can kill them, but there's one through line plot with the government agency in the background mm-hmm. that ties it all together and makes it work. And they do the same thing with scary stories to tell in the dark of the movie, where they just give it one background through line that makes it work. Whereas in Goosebumps, it's like all the books fall open and then scary stories come out of it. And it's like this really stupid and not very good. But I would also say I was impressed with the teenagers. Like their acting was was pretty good for being relative unknowns. Like I'd never seen any of them in anything. And I thought they did like a decent job in the movie. And yeah, overall, I thought it was pretty entertaining. I mean, obviously, the thing that draws you in is what Guillermo del Toro did adapting the original illustrations into the creatures in the movie. Like that's, yes, that's what makes it so connect so well to mm-hmm. people who loved those books because they're seeing three dimensional versions of these illustrations that they fell in love with. That's, that's really what it does. And even though they only adapt four stories into this movie, which I think is good. I think if they had did, done more than that, it would have been clunky. You get to see some of your most like popular illustrations come to life and it works really well. Yeah. Did you did you have something you want to talk about or I could go with another thing since I brought up scary stories? That's true, but I talked more of it. <laughs> okay. So I'm not sure if I had mentioned it at all in any of the previous episodes. If but it's I've... She-Ra, you did. No, 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 Star. <laughs> God, She-Ra. No, uh, it's, it's a TV show on Netflix called Dark, which three oh, seasons out. And I, I watched that. the first season a long time ago, like two years ago or something like that now, uh, when only that one was out. So I've now finally gone back to it. I'm about halfway through the second season. And when I, so Dark is first, the first season starts quite, I won't say clearly, but you know, something else is going on, but it seems to be a murder mystery. There is a guy with captured kids in a, you know, uh, the movie room like dungeon. Oh kind God, of put how together. is that movie? Oh yeah. And uh, freaky things are happening to them and freaky things are happening to this town. And I'd say, I'm trying to think of other stuff, but honestly, the show that comes to mind, if, if you know of it, that has a very much similar vibe is a French show called The Returned or. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I never even, I and don't know because how Because it's kind attention. of about the, the like trauma of a town and yeah. their different dark storylines that they're all going through. I would say a little bit The Leftovers too. You, you know what? That's that. the other one I yeah. thought of. Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to bring in another though. Let's, let's just go with this. Amazing. Yeah, Leftovers is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. Amazing it's show. it's like one of the best shows that's been on in the last like 10 years. Um, Just of the rope. What I really like about Dark is that by the second season, so the first season is this really cool murder mystery and murder mystery type things aren't my absolute favorite uh, things. I tend to enjoy them, but I never really seek them out. But I knew there's something else going on already in the first season. And by the second season, and this is a very hard thing because I'll just say that there's a genre meshing together where they bring in another genre and put it in together. And it really opens the story in this really, to my mind, fantastic way. And so it makes so much more interesting than just like a sequel season where they're just repeating the same thing with a different serial killer or something like that. It's a totally new kind of story happening by the second season. And I am invested now. Like there's (laughs) so much stuff happening. It's just, it's such a cool way to do a TV show. And it, has to have an excuse of why you want to care about these characters and have a tighter storyline, but then it expands in a really interesting way. Yeah. So yeah, I that's really mean. working for me. How about yourself? 
Um, see, you're talking about this, like, super, uh, like, elevated... Oh, my God. Prestige television show. Okay, please, bitch. And I'm going to jump in and be like, so I've been watching The Good Doctor. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) That show's probably won awards or something. I doubt it. I just do. Um, That being said, I cry almost every episode I watch. (laughs) Like, it's it's interesting. The cases they work on are interesting. I would say it's probably a little more interesting to me than something like Grey's Anatomy, mm-hmm. which I've also enjoyed in the past. And I think I find it, like, a little more enjoyable than Grey's Anatomy because there's less intense interpersonal drama. Like, it doesn't feel like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. It feels more like a medical drama with well-developed characters. So it is very good. Like, I do think it's very worth watching. What, so what do you, uh, besides it not having an interpersonal drive, what do you like about it? Like I said, the cases are very interesting. There's something like House, you know, House. Yeah, oh, um, I love House. Where, like, the cases are very interesting, they're exciting, and the characters are well-developed. It's just not soapy. Like, the okay. drama that happens between them, it's not, like, it's not a lot of will they or won't they. It's not a lot of, like, this character's getting divorced because he's cheating on with, like, cheating on his wife with this character. You know, it's not stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. just, like basically how this uh dr sean murphy who's the autistic doctor with savant syndrome his medical mind and his savant syndrome for specifically medicine and sciences um and then how he interacts with other patients with other characters um and then how the other characters interact with the other people around them so it just it just feels like relatively realistic character actions the conversations don't feel melodramatic unnecessarily. A lot of the drama is just what happens in the operating room mm. and solving the mysteries of these like cases. Um, I think I'm, I have one more thing I want to talk about. Okay. okay. So, <sighs> so last night after you went to bed, I was still feeling up. So I watched a whole documentary called Lost Heroes. And it's about the lost generation of, or not just one generation, of Canadian superheroes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I am not a comic book person. Obviously, I'm a comic person in the sense that, like, everyone watches the Marvel movies nowadays. But, like, other than that, I've never really been. But so many of my friends, so many people I know are in that world or care about that stuff. So I, like, always feel like I should know more about it or connect more to it. But Lost Years, this documentary really captured my attention um, cause there's just, I don't know, there's something so enchanting and weird about this idea of like the Canadian identity through these, um, superheroes. And I knew I've had friends talk to me about like Captain Canuck and Alpha Force or Alpha Strike. Um, oh yeah, I do know about that one. Yeah. And I'm just like, what are these? Like no one ever talks about Alpha Strike these. Force? I think it's, it's just two words, but I forget which one it is. It's one of the two. Yeah, so I let's just call it Alpha about. Force. All right. Um, we're going to have some people yelling at us. So one of the cool things, so during World War II, there was people, comics were huge. Mm-hmm. And the American comics were coming into uh, to Canada and people were, gobble, like, love, uh, kids were reading them all the time. or a huge thing that people would have. But then when the war happened, um, there was a, a blockade. So no comics came in from the U.S. to Canada. So for about a four to five year period, these companies made Canadian comics. And that's all Canadians could get. So it was this huge golden age of all these, like, super, like, 
just random heroes, just like <laughs> barely put together, scrapped together. But Canadians loved it because it's what they could get and everyone was so into it at the time. And so like the first one was called Iron Man. No relation. <laughs> just blatant ripoff. Yeah. Well, it wasn't at the time because Iron Man didn't exist. Oh, I don't know when Iron Man's yeah. inception was. Or, so. he, he might have existed at that time, but he he wasn't. Because um, uh, I thought Iron Man was one of the first Avengers. So, um, I mean, this was around 1939, you know, so who knows when first comic. That's true. I honestly yeah. don't even know. I honestly don't even know. Um, but Iron Man, he was just basically a strong man. And he just did stuff. I right. Mean, that works. But there's some cool ones like Canada Jack. And that is like that. the lamest name. No, you will not tell me that. Canada Jack? Yeah. He's like a lumberjack. Oh Hi-ya. my god. We but leaned yeah. hard into our stereotypes in the 40s. But yeah, so th- that that era ended after uh, the U.S. opened its borders again. All those companies went under almost immediately. But there's all these artists who are excited to make... That's such a bummer. Yeah. Who are excited to make Canadian comics. So eventually, in a, in a new wave in the 60s, 70s Captain Connect was made. And a cool thing about that Captain late? Connect. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, there's a 20 year gap period where nothing was made. I just thought Captain Connect was older than that for some reason. Yeah, so in the 1960s he was made and he uh, had a team and one was like an RCMP type soldier. Oh my God. And one was Canada. Uh, uh, so a Quebecois. Lame. And why are we so lame? Okay. We just had a Mountie yeah, as true. a superhero. Yeah, no, well, he wasn't. Super, he was. He was like part of the team because Captain Jack was like a Captain America, like just a super soldier as part of our. Oh, so what? He was like Coulson, like Agent Coulson for the Avengers. Uh, yeah, or so he was like, or like Nick Fury. Yeah, like yeah, like a person. Okay, who, yeah, okay. who helped That's out the team and whatnot. Still, kind of like RCMPs, their uniforms are lame. Like yeah. they just are, so it's still kind of lame. But Captain Jack did seem kind of cool. But oh, I'm so sad. I can't remember her name. But we also had. One of the first huge female superheroes in that, in those forties, uh, called, oh my god, I'm mixing it up with Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, but it's, cause it's, 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 um, Mistress of the Northern Lights or Lady of the Northern Lights or something like this, but it's like Dalivrin or something like that. She seemed pretty epic in the way they portrayed her and people are still huge fans for her, even though she only had a few runs ever, but she just like really has stayed in the cultural consciousness of fans. So what did she do? Control the Northern Lights? Yes. Yeah. That's a lame she, power. She like, took the power and like blasted at people. Oh, okay. Way cooler. I was like, she can just make the Northern Lights happen? That's no, no, no. She, she was powered by them. <laughs> okay. That's what, yeah. that's less lame. I was thinking like it was that chick who shot fireworks out of her fingers. Yeah. Jubilee from the X-Men. Yeah. Lame. Might be similar to that, but <laughs> but just little like, but it like, seems sparkly it seems cool. And she like empowered herself with it and stuff. And it it seemed they made it seem cool. So yeah, and and so we had we had a uh, a few other what was it? What did I call it? Alpha Force? Oh. I don't know. You called it Alpha Strike yeah. and Alpha Force. Okay. So I don't know. Was uh yeah? There's there's a Native American. There is um women. There's Inuit. There's a bunch of stuff. And a gay, uh, or maybe it wasn't Inuit, but the two polar people were brother and sister, and the brother was gay. And he ends, he was like the first Damn, superhero marriage in like 2010 or something like that, or oh. 2000. But right. it, yeah, he lasted through, uh, in, in through reboots through that time. So it was, it was just a cool we're still making rendition. Of, it, it, they always get very short runs and then get remade like decades later. Ah. Oh. But the, the, the documentary said that the reason the Canadian ones basically never have continuous success is because um, the market is just so small. 
So you, right. you can't compete with the American comics that can sell here. And it's especially when you brand them or set them in Canadian places. There is, if you think you can guess it, a hyper popular, one of the most popular heroes ever. Who's, who's Canadian? Wolverine. Wolverine. Yeah. So there is that type of thing. But it's, no one's tried to make more of those. He's also type. like, he's just, he's Canadian and it never comes up. It's like, he's yeah. never in Canada. No. He has, like, there's nothing about him that's like, definitively Canadian. It's just like, at one point, someone said he was from Canada. And that was like, that's it. Yeah. It's like, okay. I mean, I guess that's accurate. Like, if I lived in the States, I was like, yeah, I'm from Canada, and that would be it. It's not like there's anything about me that's overtly Canadian. I don't walk around with a pet beaver. But it's still like, you couldn't put him in like, like BC or something? Have him run around in the Redwoods for 15 minutes? The show also, or the documentary also talks about how there might be another reason why Canadian comics have... Well, two more reasons why Canadian comics might not have as much success. One thing is that Canadians, if they have an identity at all... So the first one is identity crisis. <laughs> I mean, And fair. the second one is if we have an identity, it's often that we're more the peacekeeper types. True. How are you going to make a superhero yeah. comic no, with the peacekeeper lame. types, right? Yeah. So Wolverine, our most successful, is the exact opposite of that stereotype. Yeah. He is literally a guns first, blades first, answer everything with rage and and attacking type you know that's just completely not to our image so there is a way in which comics which are kind of big american thing doesn't track for the canadian experience of identity i think there's something interesting because you bring up the identity crisis thing wolverine has an identity crisis a very big identity crisis mm-hmm. he doesn't actually know who he is he has yeah. no memory of his time before the adamantium skeleton was um yep. like or before the adamantium coated his skeleton. He has no real memory or identity before that. So I think there's kind of an interesting parallel that you could say that, like, Canadians don't necessarily have a cultural identity, and then we have this Canadian character who has no real personal identity beyond prior to his experiments. It's also, uh, one last interesting thing, It's all, this is, like, barely to do with the Canadian thing, but the Canadian communist era was World War II, and so tons of them, the main villain was Hitler, or at least the Nazis. Yeah. And it was just like superheroes just literally just fighting Nazis. Like, there's no Lex Luthor, no special Mysterio, or whatever. It's literally like, no, 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 it's just actually Hitler and real Nazis that they're fighting. And I think it's something we forget a little bit now about the origins of superheroes, that they were made during war times as these actors in that in that field and well, so I mean, it's interesting captain america basically fought nazis yeah like his main enemy was hydra so i mean there's an argument there but captain america was absolutely a propaganda piece so was superman they were just straight prop- like wartime propaganda pieces to show like america strong i think it's interesting though because there is there has been more wars vietnam and uh they Iraq lost that though and whatnot but i'm just saying it's like they don't superheroes we especially at least nowadays we don't say it's like and then we're gonna do them against the vietnam uh, vietnamese them against the no uh, but the vietnam war was an illegal war like it was considered an illegal war so i don't think they want to draw attention to an illegal war that they lost yeah right so that makes perfect sense um same with korea like korea wasn't totally sanctioned either and they didn't win that either so i don't think they really want to draw attention to either of those two wars and then the war on terror is sort of like incon- like it's yeah. it's kind of difficult. But yeah, to- remember comics are made by the government, right? These are the artists and stuff and their psyches that are like what they find interesting to. No, show. for sure, but I and think it used to be a much more patriotic, connected to the actual wars of the country thing. Yeah, no, I agree, but I mean, you're also talking about like 
between World War II and the Vietnam War, like, you're talking about, what, maybe 30 years? Like, mm-hmm. you're talking about a blink as far as the historical eye goes. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it could be that the law preventing the government from sanctioning propaganda is gone, but, I mean... The whole, like, cultural patriotism and get-behind-the-war stuff was still pretty popular at the beginning of the Vietnam War. So I, I would honestly say that, like, just on the world stage, it doesn't play well. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to talk about this um, in relation to the Purge movies, but I'll just bring it up now and then it'll probably things. But uh, I'm going to the- be 100% honest with you. I just, like, I totally forgot what this episode was about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> Watchmen, the show. But in particular, right. I want to bring up the, co- the the comic where the comedian is and Doc Manhattan are helping the Vietnam War. Yeah. And then that's reflected back in the comic as being maybe not so good. Yeah. Maybe not so patriotic. Maybe more mercenary. Maybe a problem of American imperialism. And so I think that's a really interesting evolution of that original Let's Punch Nazis idea of Yeah. Um, no, I agree. Comics. And I loved, like... I think the thing about Watchmen, that, like, the original um, graphic novel that I found so interesting was, like, Dr. Manhattan had, like, a weird disconnect with human emotions after he became Dr. Manhattan. Yes. Um, and was sort of elevated beyond and beyond, like, human consciousness. But even Dr. Manhattan, after dealing with Vietnam, felt guilt for what he had been a part of. And I think that's yes. really interesting. And you could tell that it tortured the comedian because, he, like... The comedian was very violent and aggressive, and he was very much like the Wolverine-type character, guns blazing. But he, after that point, never really recovered. Like, he was a borderline alcoholic, and and it basically ended his career and his life. Um, So I think that's beyond just showing them as borderline mercenaries and, like, the, like, ace in the hole kind of, we're just going to destroy everything in our path. It showed the effect, the toll that that took on those two characters and what that represents for the toll that it took on America and the real world. I had never really thought of it before, but Dr. Manhattan is obviously a reference to nuclear power. And Wait, you never realized that? Well, of he course. He was born out of the Manhattan Project. No, of course, of course I recognize that thing, but, but that it, tying it to the Vietnam War, it recognized that he represents the American true superpowerdom and what that yeah. meant for America. And that him being a God figure represents America's power. And that, it's not necessarily a thing for good. Yeah, it's basically like if your most powerful weapon gained sentience and then yeah. based, like, turned around and told you, you're the evil ones, I'm just the weapon. Yeah. Going to be a lot of critique of America this episode, but I used up all my time. We're going to alienate some people. <laughs> I took up all my time. So did you have another thing you want to talk about? I mean, it seems kind of blasé to talk about now, so I'm going to go no. Okay. We just had a really in-depth conversation about comic books and, like, their representation of American history, so I feel uncomfortable mentioning the stupid procedural I was watching. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, we might as well just get into it. We spent the entire week, almost the entire week, it's Thursday, we spent the majority of the week watching all four Purge movies. Yep. We did not watch the television series because that would have taken way too much time. But we did watch The Purge, Anarchy, Election Year, and then The First Purge. Correct. It took me a minute to remember their names in order. You did it. (laughs) I'm amazed. So this was my pick. If you can't tell at this point what our tastes are individually, (laughs) The Purge was my pick. 
I love the Purge movies. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I know they're not perfect. I I have no illusions about their level of esteem in the, like, cinematic universe. But I think they're very interesting. And there's sort of a narrative that goes through all of them and the intensity that amps up between them. That intensity amping, amping up, I related to you when we were first watching mm-hmm. them to the Saw series. And I will yeah. say, like, the first Saw movie is an exceptional psychological thriller like it's not a torture porn movie like so many of the other ones the first one is very like there's gore in it but it's very similar to like a seven not as good obviously because it didn't have david fincher but it's it's james wan's first movie he did insidious i think he did the conjuring and it's an exceptional throwback to like the 90s early 2000s psychological thrillers that we got like Bone Collector. That was the one with Angelina Jolie and Denzel Washington I was trying to think of the name of the last Dang. time we recorded. But it's it's a it's a great throwback to like Kiss the Girls, Along Came a Spider, Taking Lives, The Bone Collector, those types of movies with I don't know, it with a little bit more gore and a little bit more intensity that the like mid 2000s horror films had you know because you have your like final destination movies that Mm -hmm. are really the first time you see an amped up kind of violent gory death which saw does well but so much of what makes that movie exceptional is the fact that it takes place in this very tiny room it's basically your first look at an escape room because that's all Saw yeah. is. You're in, they're in this like abandoned industrial bathroom almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a dead body on the floor and the two of them chain on the other side and they have to figure out the psychological motivations that brought them there. And I would say the first purge is very similar. So much of what makes it excellent is that it takes place in this one structure and it's how these characters interact and their psychological motivations tell you what is and isn't going to happen. So it's kind of like a big puzzle box and they're all trapped inside with outside forces trying to disrupt them. Yep. And then as you go along, it becomes, it sort of amps up by expanding outward. So instead of being in just one small room in one or one small house or structure, then you're in one neighborhood and then you're in the entire country and then you go back to one city so it amps up as it goes through the first three and then the fourth being the prequel that takes you back to sort of the beginning Mm -hmm. yeah i was telling you with the purge movies that as we were watching them i think it's not like the song movies where the first one is in a certain way leagues above the the rest of them in the purge movies i feel like they're all close to as good as each other but there is a sense in which once you get the idea of the first one the ideas aren't as fresh in each of the subsequent ones so it's it's they do rely on being amped up to be as interesting um but overall i feel like it's almost one just long continuous movie in the sense that they're all similar in vibe similar in idea things are happening yeah i mean i don't disagree with you the premise remains the same right because the premise is the purge Um, and we don't really follow characters between them there are characters between the purge movies but like so, there's yeah. two, and they barely, like... There's only one guy who really matters between a couple of the movies. And yeah, it isn't even, like, that important. I agree. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like, the premise remains the same, because the premise is The Purge. That's the whole point of yeah. the movies. Which, like, The Purge is this annual night in America. You can go out, and the whole point of it is to purge the American people of violence. 
Um, so yeah. people, because of social norms and niceties, pent up their rage for so long that that is the reason crime exists. Yeah. Too so much it's, it's anger the, and rage. Shirley Jackson's The Lottery idea. Yeah. Yeah. Every year that you have to get rid of and then everyone is fresher or better for the rest of you because they've been cleansed. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's the same kind of premise. Um, and you basically can go out and do whatever, but really it's highly encouraged that you murder people if you want to go out. It's not so much about looting or like burglary or anything like that. It's to go out and kill, Mm -hmm. to purge yourself of your violence, um, or your hatred or your anger or whatever it is. Um, and this was brought about by a government a party, party, a political yeah. party, thank you, words, um, called the New Founding Fathers. Yeah. Yeah. And I like the only thing that you see differently between each of them, like you said, is how the purge affects specific social groups. Mm-hmm. So the wealthy elite, the um, like impoverished or homeless, inner city, um, and people of color. And how it affects one of those groups incredibly differently compared to basically 90% of the population of the United States. So you have a very large dichotomy between what is essentially the one percenters and everybody else. Yeah. And so the title purge is obviously meant is meant to give us that sense of cleansing oneself of violence, like purging yourself of the badness in you. And, um, like, so it's like an immuno- uh, immunology or whatever response. Yes. But also, if you take the country as that, then the response is you purge it of its bad facets, which yes. for the New Founding Fathers, you realize over the course of the movie, were very clearly thinking this, it would be useful to get rid of non-productive members of society, yeah, mostly the, the poor. Yeah, the undesirables. So the, the poor, the immigrants, and the people of color who are more vulnerable and or less likely to be able to defend themselves or protect themselves to the same degree. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because the first, the first purge came out in, what, 2013, I yeah, think? I think so. um, which is really not that long after the beginning of the end of the housing bubble, which caused a major, massive recession in the United States and led to the Occupy Wall Street movement, which is what first brought about the idea of one percenters versus the 99%. Um, So it's, it's, it came out shortly after this period of severe um, fiscal instability in the United States, when the whole world's eye was turned on to the fact that there was a huge wealth disparity in the United States that's kind of unparalleled in any other country. I mean, even in Canada, we obviously have these kinds of massive discrepancies that we have homelessness, we have, you know, the working poor that exists here. But it's nothing quite like the United States, where they'll have like, 10 billionaires functioning in that country, and then 90% of their population is what is considered working poor or below the poverty line. And there are a lot of different levels to both homelessness and poverty. You know, it doesn't mean like, Homelessness doesn't necessarily mean you don't have like a couch to crash on. It means you don't have a stable address. So you could be living on the street or you could be couch surfing or you could be in a shelter and you're still homeless because you don't have one stable address. Or poverty could mean you're living paycheck to paycheck, but you have an apartment. You just have to choose sometimes between electricity and food, Mm -hmm. right? And poverty can mean you're food poor. So you are living on food stamps, 
It's like there are a lot of elements that go into being poor. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that a film like this that is very targeted at showing what happens to all levels of poverty and what happens to vulnerable communities came out around a time when like the world really was looking at America as how are you this first world nation? How are you this developed nation when so such a large portion of your population is under the poverty line? Almost any other country in the world with that large of a population of people in poverty or people experiencing elements of poverty would not be considered a developed nation. It's an obvious critique, of course, but the timing of it is very clear. Yeah, and and the critique hits from so many sides. The uh, connection between uh, religious and cult-like aspects in it, where you see um, the New Founding Fathers and their people, like, they bring their victims to a church in one of them. And are going to, like, you know, kill them on the altar. And this idea of purging. You see characters, not the Founding Fathers, but other characters who who really see the purge as this religious ecstatic experience that they need to have yeah. during the year to cleanse themselves. And so there's, between that, the KKK, the neo-Nazis, like, every every movie has two or three different critiques they're bringing in. For sure. Of yeah. different facets of the ugly side of the freedom of America and the propaganda America sells. Absolutely. I mean, there's definitely, like, in Election Year, as you, which is the third film, the cult-like aspect, there's definitely a critique in that on the real borderline lie that is separation of church and state when you talk about America. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure I'm going to make people angry, but it's true. I mean, it, like, you can't say that, you're, that your country is truly separating church and state when you have in God we trust on your money. When, um, you know, you've only ever elected one non-Christian president, and that was Kennedy in the 60s, and he was Catholic. Like, those kinds of things make it abundantly clear that it really isn't a secular society in America. And yet there are so many different types of religious experience in America. So it's very strange that like this is a Christian country for lack of a better term, but nobody wants to talk about it. It's like their entire government is permeated with this sort of like white Christian experience. And yet the majority of their population really can't be defined by that religious association. Mm-hmm. But then you have other aspects like where they're clearly, clearly associating with like gun control being the main targeted focus or the one percenter aspect or the rate, like the blatant racism and police brutality, um, which I would say are most evident in the fourth film, mm-hmm. um, where you're really looking at the beginning of the purge and how that started. Well, and, and they point out in that one that in that first experiment that they're doing, people don't immediately become violent. Yeah. It's something that becomes the norm after, uh, I don't want to give it all away, but after certain instigation happens. Yes, antagonization. Antagonization happens, and that changes the game. And so when people feel like they're going to be under threat at all times, they're going to change the the way they think. But well, yeah. when they did, when that wasn't happening, they were partying and having having fun. Yeah, um, that's the thing. The, the lawlessness created, caused the communities to come together and celebrate and enjoy their time as a community without fear of police interference. That's really what happened in the beginning. They threw parties, they all hung out, or they went to church. Um, and it created a sense of community togetherness. Um, but outside forces instigated the violence, and then it became 
a defense mechanism. Everybody's afraid, flooded with adrenaline, and they have to start fighting back or the other option is dying. Yeah. Right? Um, so some people run, some people hide, and some people fight. So yeah, no, I... There are elements of all of the movies that I love, but I think from that aspect, the fourth movie has a lot to say that I find really interesting. Is it perfect? No. But I think there are interesting things that they're showing in that first film, like the, you know, antagonistic forces that are necessary to really create the purge, the propaganda and like fake media type thing that's used to sell it and make it like go national all of those elements. And I think one of the most interesting, and they do it as kind of a throwaway moment in the fourth movie, but they indicate that the new founding fathers are flooding the streets with weaponry prior to the purge experiment to try and pre-instigate the need for violence, lawlessness, and crime during the purge without overtly saying it. They're just trying to subconsciously make those recommendations by making these weapons like handguns, C4, um, like semi-automatic machine guns available easily, untraceably, and cheaply Mm -hmm. within the community. I think one of the things that comes to mind for me is the founding fathers and the white supremacists and the people... 1%, 1%, it's, it's, I'm not sure who I'm saying exactly is on top here, but there's a sense in which if America's basis was on its ability, like, as many countries, is on conquering, is on imperialism, is on colonialism, is on all these different ways of military strength, one of the problems that enters is once you're at a status where there is no, ex- no self-defense excuse, right? People are aware of what you're doing. And if you're just going to go and go to invade a place for oil, invade a place for money, you need to have more of an excuse at that point. And so when they see inefficiencies in their system, the purge is a way to it reenact that violence that made America, you know, was, you know, they, they, they cleared away the Native Americans and they... Right, the colonizer things. attitude. Yeah, and, and so many things. And so that ability is only possible if you can see your enemy as, as bad, as other, and right. as not part of your community. And so there's ways in which now things have become much more integrated and that, I mean, obviously these aren't America's enemies. They're its own internal factors that there is this horrible psychological urge still within these communities mm-hmm. to purge, to keep that basically fascist ideal within themselves. And I think that is... The You're disturbing... saying communities like white supremacists, wealthy yeah. elites, that kind of... Okay. Yeah, and the, and the, pe- well, the people in the purge who become these religious fanatics of the yes, purge itself. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard, from my own perspective, like when I try to think of the philosophical reasons or, or clear reasons I don't like America, there isn't, it isn't clear to me why religion and uh, money and uh, certain t- uh, types of politics get all mixed up in America. Because they should, you know, religion should, the Christian religion should ask for poverty. But instead it, yeah. it gets people desiring more money or this prosperity religion. Well, I mean, because in Canada we're used to Honestly, we're used to Catholicism. Obviously, there are other branches of Christianity in Canada. Of course, there are. There's, you know, Jesuits. There's Baptists here. We have um, just standard Christians. We've got Protestants. We've got all of it. 
And Catholicism really puts forward this idea of like vows of poverty. Our priests, our popes, they're all supposed to take vows of poverty. And it shows poverty as being closer to God. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in certain sects of Christianity, that is not true. Because you have things like evangelical Christians where it's very much about like wealth prosperity. So there are different aspects of asking God for wealth prosperity. And by giving the church more money, you're more likely to get money back. That's the whole argument. It's like, if you donate $10, you'll get 10 times that back from God. So you'll get $100 back throughout the years by praising God and donating this money to your church and to your pastor and evangelical Christianity. And that's not true of every evangelical Christian. I don't want to offend all evangelical Christians, but that is a very commonplace thing to hear from an evangelical church. Um, So I think that's where it gets confusing because you have these types of Christianity that purport wealth being a gift from God. And that confuses the message, I think, and creates this interesting and intricate and sometimes problematic connection between religion and wealth. Yeah. And I mean, the violence too, and the guns, right? Canada, if there's one, one of the bigger, you know, guns are, are a thing in Canada that I feel is, there is people, uh, wilderness, there's wilderness guns, like hunting rifles and stuff. Of course. Yeah. Um, but this idea of people carrying around or wanting to have or going to your local store to pick up a semi-automatic is yeah. like just the foreign. F- the fact that you can go into Walmart and buy a gun is very strange to me because that's not like you can't do that here. You can go to Canadian Tire and like I think you can get hunting rifles maybe or you used to be able to when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if you can still do that now. Like I don't know where you would buy a gun in Canada. People have them, but I have no concept of where you purchase a gun of any kind. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in Canada, obviously we have very strict gun control here. Um, it's not the strictest in the world, but we do have very strict gun control. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't even fathom what you would need a semi-automatic machine gun for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've had the gun control conversation with a bunch of people and views on it range complexity. I guess the only thing I'd want to say about it is that there is an argument for the left for guns that I have a very complicated relationship with. Because I don't want to say it's totally wrong about holding guns for revolutionary purposes, basically. Or for right. communal defense against bad communities. Or communities that are after your community. And things like this. Um, when the when the police, you know, aren't on your side. And things like this. Um, there's arguments there. I, I, I do see them. I just, I don't want to run through them. But the, getting back to you know, the Purge movies and that there's Creek on America. I guess another thing I want to say is that... There is, and we were talking about this sort of lack of Canadian media. There's one thing about American media is because things are so intense there on so many sides and so many things happening, there's constant resistance media coming out. Now, not always. There's some very propaganda-ish of course, media yeah. too. But there's a lot of this media that really is making very interesting critiques. You know, stuff like Get Out, stuff like the Purge movies that are bringing in yeah. um, pretty clear critiques of what's going on in society. Yeah. Or us, which is very much about, you know, poverty relating to the hands across America movement. Yeah, no, there's, there's tons and tons of critiques and those are the types of critiques in those movies in the purge movies in, in get out in us, any of those movies. The nice thing about them is that, you know, almost any, at, at least almost any Western society can relate to some of those critiques within their own government. 
But the level at which they're at is so, like, the intensity of those critiques about government, about interpersonal relationships, about racism, about poverty, are in some ways so specific about America that it's like, there's something so intense and exaggerated about their experience with these things. Whereas, like, of course Canada has racism. Mm -hmm. Of course Canada has wage gaps. Of course Canada has poverty. Of course, Canada even has gun control conversations. But the level, at, like the extreme, exaggerated level, it's almost melodramatic in America, especially right now. But it, it's, it sometimes feels like difficult to relate in Canada about racism, about, you know, uh, religious persecution or um, feminism, because the answer ostensibly from any Canadian that's not, you know, a leftist or doesn't. Um, want to talk about those issues is well it's worse in america so why are you complaining mm -hmm. and it's like well it doesn't matter where it's worse it matters that it's a problem in our home and we can't keep relating things to america in that way we as in any country outside of america when they're trying to have a conversation about racism or police brutality or feminism the automatic answer from the person on the other side of the fence cannot be it's worse in america so stop complaining because realistically, that's how America got this bad. They kept saying, well, it's worse in Britain, so why are you complaining? Or it's worse in this destabilized nation, so why are you complaining? Instead of saying, there's a root problem here that we need to address, or it will be worse here. Mm. And that's what's going to happen in, in Canada or in Britain or in any of these other countries that just keep saying, you need to stop complaining because it's worse somewhere else. And that's in a lot of ways to me, what America has become as of late in the last few months, like with the intensity of how they've dealt, like the, uh, of how they've dealt with COVID, of the like protests against police brutality, of the like overt conversations about racism that have been needed to ha happen for like the last couple centuries. It's, I don't know. I, I like, I just don't know because every time I try and have these conversations with people that are even even sort of middle ground. Mm -hmm. That's the excuse. And it's just, it's not good enough anymore because I don't understand how you're not seeing that that excuse is exactly why we're here now globally. Yeah, I think it's it's gotten especially hard recently just because of how much more intense the situation in the yeah. US has been getting. Um, whereas I feel in Canada, things are basically the same as they were a while ago. I mean, you're... So since, since Justin Trudeau has been elected, it's been basically the same throughout to a degree i mean there's been you know there's there's been these little pockets of things happening we've had our share of protests we've had our share of you know tagging statues people ripping them down yeah. like we had the moment of yagmeet singh in um the house who like called out a racist and then got booted out for not apologizing which is insane to me right. um sure. it's insane to me that in the, like, documented etiquette and decorum for the House of Representatives, racist and racism are terms that are not allowed, but bitch and slut are not. Mm -hmm. And that just shows to me, like, you functionally cannot have a conversation about racism in the House of Representatives because you are not allowed to use the term racism or racist. Mm -hmm. And that is a significant systemic problem. That's been yeah. highlighted. Um, so, like, I don't know. 
maybe Canadians aren't angry about it. Like maybe there's a deeper issue within our society about how we discuss racism or a general comfort with it. Or maybe it's because we keep shirking responsibility and saying like, well, look at America. It's so much worse there. I just went on a whole rant. Um, this movie brings out a lot in me. Yes. <laughs> While I was watching that, I was really trying to think like, what kind of movie are they? And it's, it just strikes me just how political they are. Because mm-hmm. if you strip the politicalness away, it's kind of a conceptual action movie, basically. There's a lot of shooting and there's basically a concept, like an idea of why there's like, action happening. Or like a dystopian horror. I'm not, what's the horror aspect? I don't think they're horror movies. I mean, a lot of people said the same thing about like, get out. It's not really a horror movie. And it's like, I would. Like, it's obviously a societal, like, social well, critique. Ho- yeah, but... but and it's a psychological that, it's, thriller. It, it has some of the horror mo- of, like, being in a house and not realizing these people are, are I mean, this the, way or that way, but... The first purge, like, you're locked down in a house. There's a home invasion situation. Yeah. Like, I would consider that a horror. Yeah, that's the same more on the psychological like, thriller spectrum strangers. than, than yeah. the other ones. But the other ones, like, there's just... In the second and third especially, there's just so much as gun violence and just like shootouts between characters is the main I you know and there's action heroes there's there's lots of action heroes in in them for sure yeah for sure um, for sure but i think i think there is sort of that element of the uncanny that you get from the people in the masks from the like yeah. psychopathic oh, the behavior from the cults um mentality that kind of thing so when you strip it down and just take away like yeah, there's lots of explosions, there's lots of guns, and that typically makes you think action movie. But if you strip those away and look at, like, the costuming and the masks that are used for elements of terror and fear, the cult-like behavior that has a very eerie and unsettling quality to it, those things say to me horror. So while it may not be conventional, I do think those elements exist and are layered within the movie. Yeah. Um, the masks thing, I, uh, it's interesting because, like, one obvious thing is the connection to, like, the KKK or... Of course, yeah. that. And that only comes up in, like, one movie as a direct parallel. But also the masks that, you know, the military wear, the way, uh, cover up. But you could also even say, um, the way, you know, anonymous internet trolls and whatnot mask their identity. And True. all these tie yeah. back to a sense of shame at yes. what one's doing and hiding the fact that it's like, I believe like- these things... But I can't show my face for them. Well, and that's exactly what we had discussed last night when yeah. we were watching the last one, or yesterday afternoon. Whenever we watched it, um, I'm all confused. But no, that's the exact same the exact same thing that we had talked about the other day when we were watching this. Is that there's I I'm not even sure it's the I believe in it necessarily the people wearing the masks. It's I want to commit these acts, but I don't want to be associated with them the next day because I still have to exist within this community. Yeah. I, I still have to go to these stores and frequent these businesses and go to my job. And I can't do those things if, you know, Mary in accounting knows that I killed her mother. So while I may not be prosecuted under the law, in the court of public opinion, I am now officially a criminal and a bad person. And I can never purge myself of that association. Mm-hmm. So I think there's sort of like an innuendo there to it or like a double layered kind of thought process on how you have to look at the purge where it's like it's not just about cleansing oneself of their violence or their rage because if it was no one would judge you the next day it truly is like a a total immoral 
deconstruction of society around you and then somehow the next day you have to shamelessly re-enter it and that doesn't function you can't do that you know that's like having like being like the complete and total drunken asshole at the office christmas party and then trying to go to work the next week and nobody make fun of you for dancing on the tables you can't do that you've been seen talking about some personal no uh, god no no that's the one thing i didn't do the office christmas party you don't get that drunk you get moderately drunk let someone be a little bit more drunk than you that's my advice for today but no it's the whole thing i wanted to say and you fucked it up oh my god <laughs> but no I, I i just think there's something it's it's okay so to me it's similar to the American prison system, because it's it's really just punitive. It's not about rehabilitation or reintegration into society. Mm-hmm. So regardless of the crime, when you when you leave the American prison system, you were always a convict. So when you try to apply for a job or join a club, half the time you have to check a box that says that you're a convict and you're immediately judged, yeah. regardless of what type of, type of crime you've committed, and you can no longer have that job or you'll be passed over or whatever or your people are afraid of you automatically because you have that sort of label on your head saying that you are a criminal regardless of what type and there's sort of a a reverse look at that when you look at the purge and these people wearing masks and they get to anonymously commit the same or significantly worse crimes generally significantly worse crimes than the majority of the prison population, but they get to reintegrate and reenter society without shame or judgment or fear because they will never have to tick that box and no one has seen their face. So there's something interesting. There's a dichotomy there to me that I find really interesting. Hmm. The last question that I wanted to get in was to the HBO show uh, Watchmen, which is takes totally. the original Watchmen uh, comic, but is 30 years after, takes place 30 years after, and now refocuses on the issue of race, basically. Mm-hmm. And the, Yeah, it, start, it starts, or it has like a flashback or something to the Tulsa Massacre, right? Like that's yeah, the but, kickoff. Yeah, so that happened, there is a flashback to that in episode one, and it has to do with the main characters, most of which are black, uh, and how they were connected to right. that original event. But the event that ended the New York part of the original Watchmen comics, which would be a spoiler to say, but that event happened 30 years ago. Right. Okay. So a lot of the uh, characters from that are either, well, they're not dead, but so they're all scattered or older um, and doing their own things, but you follow a new set of characters. And so one of the first things you see is that cops now all wear masks. Mm Mm-hmm. And the reason being was because there was a a night of vigilante justice against cops where a whole bunch of people went to different cops' houses and killed them all on the same night. Killed tons and tons of cops. So from then on, cops were allowed to wear masks to hide their identity from these people. And But there's a flip side. I'm trying to remember how this integrated in, but that cops need to have a certain identification on uh, on a person before they're allowed to pull out their gun. Okay. So there's there's so many dimensions that is happening and so many co- layers of commentary that are happening because they get this sort of defense of masks, but that's protection from thing from a, a, a fear that the cops have, or is it right? And then right. the KKK and stuff like that come in almost right away on this, and it's and it's related to that. And then 
Watchmen, of course, they're heroes wearing masks, right? And so there is the new wave of Watchmen who do this, who are vigilantes within the cop community, okay. who are now hiding their identities and quit the force, but now they wear these superhero masks and do their jobs. So most cop- cops just, when they're doing their day job, just have like a regular kind of bland mask. The, the These superheroes have full superhero type masks. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, the, the show itself is excellent. It was, you know, bajillion Emmy nominations. I watched it. I thought it was so good. And no one I know has, has watched it. Like, it, it's just I, a My brother watched it. My brother was obsessed with it. My brother was like, oh, it's so annoying. He's going to listen to this. And he's going to be like, ha I knew it. He has such fucking <laughs> good taste. Go, then you got to go for the wire. <laughs> no, not doing it. He's, he's. I'm outing you. He has, I know. He has. I haven't seen the wire either. He has such good taste in movies and TV shows, and it's, like, infuriating to me because it's, like, movies and TV shows are my thing, and his yeah. thing's always been music, even though oh. I was also a vocalist. Yeah, he went to, he went, I talk about my brother on this fucking podcast so often now that I know he's watching it. Um, he's gonna be like, I'm out. I know, he's gonna stop listening to it. He's gonna be like, wow, my sister really thinks I'm cool. Jesus. <laughs> I'm like, no, I don't. Reluctantly think you're cool. But no, he has good taste in movies and, and shit. And then it infuriates me, and I don't want to watch anything he recommends because I'm like, Better taste in things than me, and yeah. you're not supposed to. My thing, yeah, I the first few episodes of Watchmen, I absolutely fell in love with. By the last couple episodes, there's some parts that feel felt a bit like you know it's it's always a problem with TV shows um, where they have like superhero elements and stuff. There's a sense of not surreality, but like fakeness. You know, like this couldn't really happen because right. it's superpowers and stuff. So there is a sense in which I was like, oh, like maybe this is going to really hit it. So I feel so vindicated by these uh, Emmy nominations and whatnot that no, 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 people are recognizing it or the critics are recognizing at least that it, even though it has some, some little bit of hokey aspects from the superheroes, um, it still works out like, and I love the original Watchmen. I do too. I love the graphic novel and I really like that movie. It's just unfortunate to me that that movie didn't quite hit the mark. Yes. Especially, I can't remember if it came out after... Or before, I think it was after, but like coming off the heels of something like Sin City, which was obviously lauded and was quite excellent, the first one, it just bummed me out that the Watchmen or Watchmen didn't hit the mark in the same way. Because I think there are excellent things about it, and there are phenomenal actors in it um, who are doing really great jobs. Like you've got Jeffrey Dean Morgan as the comedian, who I I seriously can't imagine anybody else mm. playing that role. He's perfect. You've got Matthew Good as Osmond Diaz, who was also exceptional, and I love him in everything. Um, but it's great; it's excellent that this TV show was was so lauded, and I've heard amazing things about it. And I watched one episode, and then I was just like, I can't do it right now. It was, I think it was too heavy for me at the time. And then everybody was telling me how excellent it was, which always turns me off of things. It shouldn't. I don't know what it is about yeah. it. No, yeah. It's and it's not even like a contrarian thing. It's not like, well, now I hate it because everyone loves it because I'm above like popular culture. I love popular well, shit no, all I, the I, time. I, I told you what I thought about that was it's that it's hard to make it your own. If 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 someone that you know especially is like telling you it's great, then it's like, well, now I have to love it even more than them if I'm gonna like make it my own thing, or I'm just gonna not like it. And then it's like, what's the point? Well, I think it's I think it's that I think it's the struggling with being able to make it my own, but I also think it's it's sort of expectations. Well, now my sure. expectations have been raised continuously. I, I do have a I, little bit less problem with that than other people. I do find, but yeah. yeah, a lot of people I know really get this expectation factor. 
I try not to, but it's it's very hard when it's coming at you from all sides. And with Watchmen, it really was. You know, mm. it was all over social media how excellent it was. It was all I over really online how excellent. Much, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, it was on Twitter a lot, um, and it was on like people on my Facebook were talking about it all the time. Like, I'm in a bunch of like movie groups on Facebook, sure, and people were talking about it constantly on there and how excellent it was. Um, and then you know, my brother was telling me how great it was, and. It's it's difficult because I know it's going to be excellent, but it's one of those things where, like, no matter how excellent it is, if your expectations are through the roof, it's always going to fall short. So I'm like, I don't want to watch this amazing show and hate it just because my expectations were too high. Yeah, I mean, that happens. I guess, I guess my feeling with a lot of that stuff is I often watch stuff that's, like, well-reviewed or whatever, and I don't like it, but I'm just like... Usually in the end, at least I, I'm, I, I don't hate it because I res- always notice the respect or like the reasons why people like it. I think maybe though what can happen for me is I can't fall in love with it in a way that if I found it myself, I could have. Right. I get that. I get that. And I feel like Leftovers won for me. Leftovers, I had no idea that it got all this acclaim and then I watched it, loved it. And now years later, it's like very acclaimed. And I'm like, yes. The only thing, like going into the Leftovers, like my, my brother also found that show. Makes me so mad. But he, um, he was literally just like, I think only like one or two episodes were out. So it wasn't like far along, but he was like, Hey, I watched the show and it was pretty cool. Like you should watch it. And he made me and my mom watch it. And I was like, Oh, this is pretty cool. So then I kept watching it because it was right at the beginning. And even he was like, it's cool, but I've only seen a couple episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really, really loved it. And it was the same with like, there's been a few shows like that where it's like, I'll, Somebody will have watched an episode and they'll be like, the episode was really good. It might be good. And I'll give it a go and I'll usually really like it. Unless it's just objectively terrible. But like something like The Purge, I just really liked Ethan Hawke <laughs> when it came out. And I was like, oh, it's like an act, like it's like a horror home invasion thing. And Ethan Hawke is in it. I'll go see And it had Lena Headey, who is from Game of Thrones. And it right around when Game of Thrones started. So I was like, this is cool. Like, I'll go see it. Ethan Hawke's a fox. And I ended up just absolutely adoring it, like completely falling in love. And that was when I was like right in the heart of my Bloomhouse horror obsession and was like watching shit loads of stuff Bloomhouse had done. Now they make a lot of garbage, but I just ended up really loving The Purge. It's weird. It's mm-hmm. like part of it's definitely like I found it myself, so that's why I love it for sure. But part of it's definitely just being able to go in with absolutely no expectations. Like, even with Get Out, I went in with zero expectations because a lot of people were like, Jordan Peele is writing and directing this movie from, like, Key and Peele? And I was like, it's a horror movie and it looks, like, cool and weird. So I want to see it. And I ended up just absolutely loving it. Mm -hmm. Same with Midsummer And Hereditary. It's like, I know nothing about this. So I'll give it a go. I think that's part of the reason I have such a love for, like, indie or, like, lower budget movies, because they don't necessarily get all the hype beforehand. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't get shitloads of trailers, you don't get tons and tons of reviews ahead of time, so you don't really have expectations. Nobody's saying it's excellent or it's terrible, it's just kind of like, this was good, but it's relatively unknown. So you get to go see it and kind of experience it on your own with absolutely no expectations. I had the same thing with like Searching and Unfriended, which were totally different styles of pseudo found footage horror movies. And I absolutely adored them, like completely new filming styles, new techniques, very like 
up with the digital age kind of style. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well for me. And I absolutely loved them because they were so new. They were trying something so different, even if they weren't totally perfect. I don't think I have uh, much more to say about the Purge movies or nothing's coming to mind, at least recently. No, I feel kind of bad. I feel like we should have discussed them more linearly, but they're really hard to talk about as separate entities. You know what I mean? Like they all kind of wind into each other that it's very difficult to sort of go like, we're going to talk about the first one and then the second one and then the third one, because they're kind of just all the same movie done in larger or smaller spaces. Yeah, with different I, communities. I think I'm a bit worse worse at doing this, but I feel like there is things to be said about uh, different characters that are in different in in the different ones and what they represent or what they're what they're doing. But when you watch four back to back, it's like the characters do feel more archetypal than when you're watching the each right individual for sure. one. But there is something to be said about a kind of white savior complex problem where. In the end, by the end of election year, which is the end chronologically of the sequence, it has been a uh, like badass white guy who's done most of the defending and killing in most throughout most of the movies, and, and he a is hot, white woman though. senator who yeah. saves the world or America. Yeah, and so it's a little bit like there's so many diverse characters, like so many in these movies, yeah. and like they don't come to a lot. In actual status. I I wish they had done more in the second movie, Anarchy, with the Resistance. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's really interesting. Like, the anti-NFFA yes. Resistance. Um, and the stylized Spike Lee Resistance leader. Um, well, and by, by the end of election year, that's kind of a problem. Because there's a kind of Black Panther's vibe to them. And then they're, you know, it's told, well, that isn't the right answer by the sen- the, the white woman senator. She's like, you guys got to stop this. We got to do this the correct way in the system. Now, they do sort of get away with it because in self-defense, they end up getting to kill tons of people. But in the end, that, that, that I- ideal is still held to, that they well, can't win just by killing. Or I by understand her argument because her argument was specifically... Martyrdom. I mean, yes, was around the one guy... Um, who was her opponent in the election and killing him during the purge, a resistance leader killing him during the purge would thrust him into martyrdom. And she might actually like subsequently end up losing, even though she would be pseudo running and opposed. So that is problematic because it would deeper entrench this like NFFA purge anti-black racism kind of mentality that had taken a stranglehold on America. So I understand the argument, but I also completely get where you're coming from. There is kind of a white savior complex throughout those three movies. Whereas very much in the fourth movie, I think you kind of see white people kind of almost directly as the bad guys. So I I don't know. I don't know what that says about these movies. I, I do think it's problematic that there is such a platform given to these white characters when there are a more interesting people of color and b it is sort of a conversation on like racism and wealth hoarding in america um what i would say is that i do think like on the whole 
in like the left leaning, the democratic, the liberal kind of group, there is a real problem with white savior complexes. Like there is a problem with white people having difficult ideas of what it means to be an ally to these marginalized communities. So I don't know if this is an intentional critique within the movie, but most of the white characters through those three movies are also relatively problematic in their own way. So while they may be like trying to save they're still problematic and they're forcing their ideals on these communities that are at risk or being directly targeted instead of lifting them up and supporting them and trying to help them in any real legitimate way. So while it might not be an intentional critique that the movie's trying to make, I think there's something there to be said. Well, you can definitely see in the fourth movie directed by, if, if I remember correctly, a black person. Yes. Yeah. So that one, the, the focus on, the depths of a black story is much more clear. There's no random white people filling filling the gaps. It really is about different problems in the black communities intermixing with the problems of the purge. And so it's still critical and still isn't... um, Gerard McMurray. I couldn't remember his name off the top, so I just, I really wanted to get it. The director of the fourth movie. It's the only one that wasn't directed by the, the guy who wrote it, James DeMonico. Yeah. And it was because, specifically, this was more of a focused story on, like, the black community in general. Yeah. That it felt, to them, to the writer and the producers, necessary for the person directing and telling that story to be a person who understands those conversations and experiences those conversations. Yeah. There's a sense... Gerard McMurray. There's a sense at the end of the first Purge, the fourth movie where it's about rebuilding community and being being able to have a continuous rebellion. For the, they talk about the next purge. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this as a community? Mm-hmm. And reconciliation in that way. The end of the third movie, Election Year, is interesting, or disturbed me in a way, because I don't know if you remember this final, final scene, but it's the uh, immigrant guy who's in the store, and he's repainting it. Mm-hmm. And he looks out and he sees an American flag waving. And then it cuts to the end. And the the way the gaze of that American flag was struck me as being a hopeful image of him being able to retake the American dream now that the purge is over. Right. That, I don't know, is that like, is that the right message to be ending with? Like, all we need to do is get this white woman elected and now we can... Right, I see what you're saying. Now the purge. Marcos is the character you're talking about, who is a Mexican immigrant, which I do do think that's kind of interesting that it's, you know, because there's such an anti-Mexican immigration movement in America, maybe there's something to be said about who the American dream really is supposed to be for and what it means to be an immigrant in America and what that image immediately instills in so many people. But I do agree with you that like, all we need to do is elect a white woman and now we're safe is a problematic message on its whole. And I almost like, I do wish there had been more conversations throughout it because, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you see that she's directly impacted by the purge 18 years prior when the purge first started Her home was, when she was a child living with her parents and her brother, her home was invaded. Um, They were tortured through the night. And the man who was purging basically told her mother that she got to choose who survived the night. 
And, you know, you're led to believe, obviously, because she's still alive, her mother chose her. Um, and then she grows up and wants to get into politics so she can bring an end to the purge because it's something that directly impacted her life. Um, so I can, I can understand that, that story and that message and why somebody in that position would run for office and would try to stop the purge. It's not necessarily about how the purge is impacting these communities. It's how the purge impacted her and her extrapolating those feelings and that trauma and putting it on America as a whole and being like, this is what this is like for anybody who survives after being tortured, targeted, or attacked. So it's, I don't know. It's complicated. Would I feel better about that story if it wasn't a white woman? Probably. Or if they had made a greater effort to show that she was, while white, from a working poor family or uh, somebody who experienced homelessness or something like that, I think it would have had a greater impact. But because it was yeah. just a white woman who, by the end, by the time she's running, see, appears to be a fairly affluent white woman, mm -hmm. it creates some barriers that didn't need to be there. Yeah, on the other side, or, like, to, to add to that, is just, like, no matter what the character was, was it, like, this idea that just because the purge, like, the purge is, was insanity, just because one bad internal civil war thing ended, the idea that now you have America back again, or America reborn, is, to me, a little I... bit too much of a, like, if this was supposed to be all a critique of America, it's so strange to me that it's like all, all the problem was was the purge. I don't, I don't think it's saying all the problem. Okay, so while I agree with you, it's not a perfect message. I don't think that what that movie or what that series is saying that the only problem with America is the purge. And then as soon as this woman gets elected, everything's going to get better. I think what it's saying is that these communities were completely without hope during the purge because they couldn't properly defend themselves, because they were overwhelmingly targeted over other any other community. But now, because somebody who is anti-purge and who does not align with the political views of the NFFA, the party who has, we're assuming, been in power for 20 years, is now in charge, these communities have a sense of hope for the first time True. in two decades. You know, these communities who have basically have become these like annual war-torn countries now for the first time ever have a sense of hope they're gener they're like full there's a full generation of borderline children and young adults who know nothing but their experiences within the purge and then the 364 days waiting until it happens again, trying to rebuild their communities, watching their parents try and rebuild their communities, the suffering, the pain, the inability to come together. And now there's a chance that it could get better. And that's incredibly powerful to go without hope for decades. And then for the first time experience it is an incredibly powerful moment. Um, and I think that's what it's trying to say. It's that America is descending into a state of hopelessness for many communities. And we need to bring back that feeling to be able to rebuild. Well, I guess that's why I like the ending of the fourth one more, though, because I got that. Well, they, they weren't hopeful. They were scared that more purges were happening. But there's a sense of rebuilding in the community. This one, he's rebuilding a store. But then to look at the American flag to me, even though it's not a Confederate flag, it's not a neo-Nazi because it's not the new founding fathers. It still just felt too much like, did we learn any lessons about that it, these were I, always rooted in American ideals? I disagree because I feel like this is a man who has come from a 
country that experiences a great amount of violence. He's from Mexico City. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a high crime uh, rate in Mexico City in a lot of areas. So he had to fight his way to a country that he believed would be better and at least annually was worse or as bad. And he was treated very poorly because he was an immigrant from a very specific country. And now he can kind of experience that sort of idealistic American hope for the first time, along with these other marginalized communities that also know America can be a good place or a place where they can rebuild or restart, but hasn't been for so many people for so long. You know, so I, I don't know. I think it works. For me, it works. Like the American flag has been, become such a powerful image for the strength and, and power of America. So I, I just think it's so much about that strength being retooled and reformed and trying to rebuild. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I could talk about this forever, but... Um, this one little moment, this fucking flag, and we're just sitting well, here debating but it is, that it is, it is the else. core of what I think the movies are about, which to me was always a critique of the very foundations of the American identity. Yeah, but the flag isn't the very foundation. It's that, just but a That's symbol. what I think it symbolizes, that America can become to say the worst possible line, you're great again, right? But that is what the argument oh, man. is. Man, I understand the pain you have there. I do. I get it. And and so I, I just think it's, for these movies, I think it was the, the wrong move. And I, I enjoyed the fourth movies, even though it isn't a hopeful message. It is a message of perpetual rebellion. Get ready for constant resistance. Yeah. I found that more in line with how I read the movies. Because the movies are critiques of America's values itself i get it but you also have to think about it as this is like somebody who chose to immigrate to the country yes whose only experience of what america is is through popular culture right like he he wasn't born there he does he didn't grow up with the values there he grew up with essentially the image that america perpetuates to the world which is very different like the image that he understood america to be is very different than the america that he got so his association with the flag is still the image that he had from an outsider's perspective looking in, hoping for better. Well, and the other problem is going back to the senator is that where they're going, what they're released from was literally all it is, is just a not, not the founding fathers, right? Like it's not even like there's any message. It was something I wrote in my, uh, my very short notes was that there is no, real no, foundation I, I of a with. new idea of what to yes. do. All Her only platform was anti-purge. Is, is don't purge. Yeah. And it's like, but that's not, like, <laughs> how does that actually help us with these systematic problems? No, and so I if agree. the purge movies fail as a critique, it's not because they fail at critiquing, but fail at, you know, what always people ask, and it's often too much to ask, a new idea, some proposal. Yeah. No, I agree with you there. That critique I agree with. And I would say election year is for sure the the weakest of Well, it's not about the weakest. It's, it is the, the conclusion of the of original that, trilogy. But because of that lack of standing, I would say it's the weakest of the films. Because if they had have given her a legitimate platform other than anti-purge because she experienced violence in the purge, I think it would have been a lot more powerful. You know, if you had have made her a member of a marginalized community who's overwhelmingly targeted throughout the years, and she rose up during politics to try and make a change to better her community and other communities like it, I think that would have been a much more powerful like message. Um, and it would have fit in line with the films a lot better. 
But they basically just made her an independent running on a platform of anti-purge and it was meaningless mm-hmm. sort of and the only people who latched onto her were people who obviously experienced overwhelming violence because of the purge understandable but it doesn't really make sense you know it doesn't really work it's like this is the only platform you have you have no talking points you never see her really in a debate of any kind like you see her for a couple yeah. of seconds at the beginning in a debate and it's mostly just talking about her experiences like in with what happened to her family. You see her in one interview for like five seconds. And again, just talking about her experiences with her family. So it kind of limits the impact that her character can have. And it limits your willingness to care about whether or not she survives to the end. Um, and that I think is to the film's detriment. Whereas if you had have had a powerful character, like the woman in the fourth movie, um, or no, sorry, the woman in the third movie, who's working the triage van. Mm-hmm. I think that would have been a lot more meaningful Yeah. Um, just because she's strong. She's powerful. She has gone out and experienced the purge on both sides. She's been targeted. She has been trying to save people on a medic van, a triage van. She's been part of the resistance. And she also was at one point an active participant in the purge. So you get a really interesting sort of development for her character in a very short period of time. You understand where she came from, why she switched, what she's doing now, and how powerful she is in her community, and how meaningful she is in her community to both sides, active purgers and people just trying to defend themselves and survive. It feels like in the first two movies, by the end, they turned the resistance leaders into, to only have the possibility of winning from outside, what they want to do is assassinate and win through violence. And that made it, of course, then the other option, the senator who's going to win through hearts and minds is, yes, of course, if those are my only options, I'm going to pick her. But like you're saying, you could have had characters within the resistance, within, like, who have lived out these experiences and lived these things, try to come to a better compromise here and try to come to a thing and give us a better third option than being like, oh, I've got to vote for the white lady now because the options my own community give me are purely a political revolutionary to the fullest violent degree. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a weird sort of strain on law and lawlessness where like none of these resistance people, not that I'm condoning assassination, but because they were such like, they were like aggressive, intense resistance, like group. Mm -hmm. I find it odd that even though like obviously crime is illegal 364 days of a year. I find it odd that none of them ever tried to assassinate these political leaders at any other day but the purge. Like, obviously the purge yeah, we, would be the hardest day to do it. We only see in the movies purge days. I so know, know. I know. But there's there's no indication that yeah. they have. There's no indication that they really, like, communicate outside of purge well, days or leading up to it, purge days. It also felt like the New Founding Fathers, who's like a third political party, they seem to have won the elections for, like, 15 times straight. Because yeah. it, it, the purge spans... 20-odd? Yeah, more than 30, 40-odd years? Something well, like 2016, that. and her parents died in one of the early purges, so it's 18 years later. So it's like 20-odd years. Well, because there's election... Because there's the first purge is much earlier than that, wasn't it? The first purge was in 2016. No. Yes. How could... So 2013, when they first made the movies? The was, first movie was 2013. But the first purge happened in 2016. 
And the first and the purge that comes out in 2013 occurs in 2022, 2021, huh. something like that. 2022. I did not realize it was that that close in the timeline. Yeah. So the 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 first one takes place in 2021. The movie came out in 2013. The second one came out in 2014 and takes place in 2022. The third one came out in 2016 and takes place 18 years after the first actual purge happened, which was 2016. And that came out in 20, actually 2016, maybe. And then the fourth one came out in 2018. And that's the first purge, which is in 2016. Mm-hmm. What, so what's the gap between the purges in one and two? One year. It's one year later. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's 2021 and 2022, I think. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a one-year gap. Then the first purge happens in 2016. 18 years later is the third purge, timeline-wise. And then the fourth movie is a prequel. Yeah. Happens in 2016. I don't know. It just it made them out to be, like, I thought it was, like, at least 30 or 40 years between all of them. No, it's, like, a 20-year span. It's, like, a 20-year span. So it's it's still a lot of, like... I, five elections yeah it's still a decent amount of elections but the thing that bothered me was that she's a like she's a third party independent or not third party but she's an independent she's not a party member so like somehow the new founding fathers seem to have just demolished the democrats and the republicans mm. and the only thing i can think about that is that the wealthiest and elitist of the democrats of the democrats and the republicans became the new founding fathers maybe i i think they honestly just didn't think it think about it I mean, it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible, of course. But that's the only thing that kind of makes sense in my mind, because, like, why would there just not be any other party? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's been a two-party system for so long, and then the NFFA just, like, comes in out of nowhere, and there's just no other party? Like, that just seems weird. Yeah, I mean, again, I just think it's because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, They right, just were enough. like, America's now controlled by the NFFA. The end. All right, fair enough. And But somehow there's still elections, because she's able to get to the one thing i did really love and just quickly before we wrap up we can cut out whatever we want but the one thing i really did love is that the third one what the third one brought in while it may not be a perfect movie brought in the concept of murder uh tourism yeah which i think is exactly what would happen if america had a lawless day yeah it's um, true, but they also did nothing with it. It was literally like... I know, that. and that bums me out because I think it's really, like, it's an interesting conversation that you could have had, an interesting critique because, I mean, obviously, like, sex tourism exists and the majority of sex tourists are American um, or Western countries. Like, you, uh, obviously, there's I'm sure there's Canadians who participate in sex tourism and, you know, Europeans, Brits, whatever... But a lot of the ones that you hear about are American. So now you have America having this lawless night and everybody's flocking to America to participate uh, in essentially murder tourism because it's legal there for one day of the year. And I think that's exactly what would happen. And it would have been interesting if they had to push the envelope on that conversation a little bit, too. Mm -hmm. I don't think it necessarily meets in line with like what they're trying to critique about America but I think you could have done something with like America is the greatest country in the world because they offer murder tourism. And I think it would have been an interesting conversation. Yeah. So missed opportunity, but I think it was an interesting thing that they brought in. But yeah. I mean, overall, I understand these movies aren't perfect. They're not even necessarily like great cinematically, but I mm-hmm. think they're really interesting. And I think like what they did was very different when they first came out. Like yeah. there really wasn't anything trying to do or say the same kind of thing on a political level as intensely or 
vehemently as the Purge movies were when they originally came out. And now, of course, we have so many films that come out in America that are like just outright critiques on systemic problems or the government. But at that time, it was a very new concept. And I thought it was really as well executed as it could be. I think because it's like, I definitely think at least one of them is worth watching. Watching four is a lot for the same concept. It but there's no lot. particular ones I say are, like, worse than the other. So it's, it's it's very hard to make, like, there's no, like, clear, like, oh, you should watch, you know, one and two and not three or blah, blah. It's like, they're all interesting. They all have something going on. And so it's, it, you know, you, you can either just pick one at random or... Yeah, like I mean, that's the other thing. You don't need to watch them in order. Yeah. You don't need to watch all of them. You can watch any one you want. Um, there are aspects to them that relate to previous ones, but it's really not that important. Yeah. But I I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I would say the third is the weakest. But I think it has such an interesting concept, like with the actual yeah. election year part. And we ended up talking about more than the others. I know. I know. It has an interesting concept, but it also has some of the more like confused messaging. For sure. So if that's going to be the only one you watch, I would rather you watch a different purge. You know what I mean? Like if you're only going to watch one. Well, that's my problem too. Watching just the first one, while interesting in its own right, it doesn't have that the the full critique of the urban scene that all the other ones do. Yeah, it doesn't push the envelope. It's it's very soft. The other three gives you more of that message, but the first one really gives you a summation of the whole idea of what's going on quickly, like in the sense like. You get the cult aspects, you get the racism stuff, you get the rich versus poor. Like, it's all there, but it's just not in the same setting as the other ones. I also like the rich versus ultra-rich thing. Like, the haves who just don't have as much as the other person. I like the idea of, like, the rich turning on each other because you have more than me. Yeah. Because I feel like that's very true. I -hmm. feel like there's a lot of accuracy in that statement the like incessant greed, the need for more, the jealousy or covetedness of like the people around you, I think is very true to that specific subset of people. So there's a lot of interesting things in the first one. I like the second, but I would say like the first and fourth are probably the ones I would recommend if you're going to only watch like one or two. But there are some great characters in the third and the second I honestly don't have we just watched it like three days ago and I barely remember it. The second, yeah, has the least memorable parts, but it's, it really gets you into the urban atmosphere and gets you the true, like what the third and fourth are trying to say. But the fourth works really well because you see the purge from the beginning. It's inception. You understand how it began. You see that like true, like, I mean, the fact, like, the fourth one takes place on Staten Island and I think that works really well in its favor because Staten Island has a huge, hugely diverse demographic it has a large population of immigrants it has a large population of people of color and it has a large population of working poor or blue collar workers um so you get a lot of diversity in that one borough plus you still get the outrageousness and the intensity and you get that resistance revolution feel and you understand the targeted racism um and you understand like the government interference so i think you get a lot out of it hard to say yeah it is tell us what you think (laughs) which purge is your favorite or do you like any of them or do you hate them all or do you think they're stupid i want to know you can follow us on twitter yes at fans lab pod nailed it uh and basically nowhere else because that's where we're at 
Uh, I set up an Instagram, but right. uh, I haven't started really doing anything with it. So, you know, I mean, you have all us there. There's just not much going on yet. And then, yeah, you know, DM us. <laughs> but yeah, thanks for listening. Tell us what you think we should watch next. We'll see you next time. Yeah. Bye. Bye.